So uh, before we start this morning, let's have a word of prayer. And we'll remember a pastor. Uh, he'll be back this afternoon. John Howie is picking him up from the airport. And they were supposed to come back a week from tomorrow, I believe. Uh, but uh, it was really hot over there. You, you probably all saw that on his emails. And, of course, the buildings are tin-roofed. That heat and uh, lack of sleep and everything. So his his heart rate was one in the high 90s, which normally is in the 60s. So um, there was, uh, I'm sure, some concern. At least there was concern on this end. And um, uh, the last contact I had with him myself was um, after he'd had a three-hour nap on the plane, and he was down to 82. So he's hoping just the uh, Air conditioning and being able to sleep will, uh, will help that. But we can pray for him this morning as they travel, okay? Father, we just thank you uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a sovereign God. Uh, there are no surprises with you. Uh, there are disappointments, Lord, at times uh, with your people, as we'll see today in Amos, and as we can apply to us in the church age. And, uh, Lord, we know that uh, um, with the benefits you give us, there comes responsibility in how we respond. Just pray this morning that we would be found in a heart of worship. And, uh, Lord, that we would look to you as uh, who you really are. And, Father, uh, we also pray for Pastor and Karen as they travel. I just pray that uh, uh, he will get rest as they travel and that, uh, Father, uh, that heart rate would come down to more of a normal level. And we anticipate uh, being able to see him soon. And we thank you for him. Thank you for his dedication to ministry, not only here but abroad. And we ask now you bless our time together and bless them as they travel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Amos, and um, we're going to be doing chapters 3 and 4 today. And Amos... The name Amos means burden or burden bearer, and it just, uh, it, it always amazes me, it shouldn't, but when I think about um, many of the prophets, how they're named as children, and then they become a prophet of God, and their name has a meaning that registers what, with the topic that they would uh, be uh, giving. We saw that with Hosea also, and... Uh, so as we look today, we're looking at Amos, a burden bearer. He, he uh, wrote, um, I don't know how well you can see this. My blurry eyes don't see it real well, but, you know, it's interesting. We're in this time frame where we see a number of prophets who are prophesying against the northern kingdom because of their sin and lack of true worship. Uh, Jonah, we went through some years ago. Hosea had the longest ministry, about up to 70 years. So he's covering all these kings in his prophecy. Amos just had a very short prophecy. This is actually wider than what I actually think he prophesied. Micah, we just went through with, with uh, Wayne. And then Isaiah, which pastor just got through preaching through Isaiah. So we've covered... Uh, now, pretty much these six prophets, 
who prophesied primarily to the northern kingdom and for the purpose of, uh, of challenging them to repent of their sin. And right in the middle of Jeroboam II, and Jeroboam, during Jeroboam II's reign, it was a, it was a time in, in uh, Israel of great political and economic wealth. They were a powerful nation. They, they were uh, uh, undefeatable in their own eyes and the eyes of others. Uh, economically, we're going to see that they were a very wealthy nation, and with that uh, wealth came a responsibility that God had for them and how that's handled. And Amos, right kind of starts in the middle of Jeroboam II's reign, so probably around 755 uh, B.C., and that's, that's going to be uh, about 650 to 700 years after um, uh, we saw the children of Israel uh, come out of Egypt with, uh, with Moses. So we're seeing a timeline here that as they were challenged to always remember where they came from, what they did, what removed from that, but God still holds them accountable to be the message and what God had done for them and the fact that he's sovereign over everything in creation. So as we look at, at um, Amos here, we are going to see in chapter 3, he starts out with some declarations. We see the words, hear the word in verse 1. We see the word uh, again uh, in uh, uh, verse uh, um, uh, 13, where he says, hear and testify. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, hear the Lord. So there's declarations that he's giving and commands that he's giving for the, the people to listen to Amos. Amos would have been really an unknown. I don't think there's anywhere else that he's really even mentioned in the Bible, or if he is mentioned just a slightly as a prophet. So a very unknown type of individual, but God chooses to use them, just like us. Uh, we're unknown to most people, and maybe sometimes we're unknown even in our midst, unfortunately, but God still chooses to use us. So this is a second series of oracles that Amos is giving to, to the northern tribe, and he's from the southern tribe of Judah, to the northern tribe of Israel, uh, it can be named Israel, it can be uh, Samaria, it can be Ephraim, all those would apply to the ten northern tribes. And um, as he's giving this, his challenge is for them to repent. If they resist the challenge to repent, what's going to happen? Israel will be defeated. Now, if you're Israel, the, the, just uh, the run-of-the-mill person in the nation of Israel and their corrupt nature at that time, they're going to laugh at that. We're going to get defeated. We're the most powerful army in the world. Plus, we're God's covenant people. God isn't going to allow us to be defeated because we're his covenant people. It's kind of like the person today who, trusting something other than Jesus Christ for their salvation, but if they're trusting infant baptism or church membership, they'll say, no, we're Christian. We belong to a Christian church. We're fine with God. And we have to be careful that even in a Bible-preaching church like this, that we don't get that kind of comfort. But here, we see these declarations, and then we see Amos' prophecy to the ten northern tribes. Let's look in the first two verses. And we're going to read through these and comment as we go. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, 
O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, there we see, like Hosea, where he's, he's going across the border and pointing to Judah also, because he's, he's, he's saying here, to the whole nation of Israel. That is just, a, I believe, a comment like Hosea had, where he pointed across, and he said, uh, you know, uh, not to have anything to do with Ephraim because they're joined to idols. And uh, the same thing here. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So in these first two verses, we see Amos' prophecy to the northern tribes, but he's also talking to, to Judah just at least momentarily there about the fact that they are a status that God has given them, not because they deserved it, simply because he chose them as a nation. And with that status comes the expectations. <clears throat> and those expectations are to have true worship to the God who is sovereign over all, the God whom they have known, the God whom they should know from history, which we'll see in a minute, and they aren't doing that. And he says, you only have I known of all the people. Now we know that there's proselytes, Gentile proselytes, but as a nation, uh, the nation of Israel only has been known by God. And then he goes on and he's, he has a set of rhetorical questions here that we're going to read through. He says in verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Now, why would that be significant? These are contrary to nature statements he's making. Why would, would a lion not roar if he doesn't already have the prey? Yeah, everything would run. If they heard the lion roar, they're going to run. There wouldn't be any prey. So it's contrary to nature, and that's the point he's trying to get across here. Does a young lion cry out from the den if he has not taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Now that, that's the significant one that I think uh, we, we want to look at here. These, these, uh, these are contrary to nature. Now why was a trumpet blown in a city? What was the reason for that? To warn of what? Right on, Dan. Thank you. They, they were warning of peril, of enemy armies that are coming, and they had sound the trumpet so everybody would be prepared for this uh, attack from outside. So there was a fear that came with that when the enemy is coming. There was a fear of battle. And he's saying, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. Just the opposite. They are afraid. These things are normal. And then he says, the verse that I think is, is really important here, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? There is nothing in this earth that happens except at the hand of a sovereign God. And that's the point Amos is trying to make here. He's saying, people, there is none of these things take place. Even that bird in a snare, none of these things take place except at the hand of a sovereign God who allows that. And when that trumpet is blown and the people aren't afraid, no, they're going to be afraid. And here, God is blowing the trumpet. We're going to see that here in a second. 
So on to verse 7, it says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? So where is the grace of God in this? Well, we pointed that out already up here. This is one of the earlier ones I realized with this specific message. But in the matter of, of announcing the defeat of the northern ten tribes, God sends six prophets, all with similar messages. And that is, beware, be afraid of a sovereign God in your disobedience, because there's going to be judgment that comes with disobedience, the same as it is for us. God has roared, he's saying here, fear him. The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos himself was afraid of God's message and afraid not to deliver it. Now, you think of a prophet going into a nation and and pronouncing judgment like that and accusing them of not having proper worship when they are deceived and thinking that all their worship, even their Baal worship, is part of godliness. What's the danger of that man? That's a great danger. But in spite of that, Amos understands the sovereignty of God, and he has a responsibility to carry out God's message. And he's doing that to the people of Israel here. When God's people suffer self-deception, there's disastrous results. And that's what's happening with the northern tribes here. So let's go on to verse 9. And we see here an invitation for even the nations. God, God is proclaiming. He says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, that would be Philistia, to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great tumults within her, and the oppressed in her midst. And he's announcing here, even to bring the nations to judge Israel, bring the nations to see what they are doing in terms of true worship. What are they doing in terms of oppressing their own people? We're going to see more on that. And God says, because of this, The nations are judging you. The ungodly nations are are witnessing uh, the the sin that you're producing. And so he's asking the nations to look and to judge them. And then he goes on and says in verse 10, They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Now we're going to see ten declarations where it says, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. It's going to be an ongoing declaration that... that, uh, um, Amos is going to pronounce here uh, from uh, the message of God. So in verses 10 through 12, he says, they viewed themselves as undefeatable, and they mistreated their own people, their own brethren, inside their fortified cities. Let's read that. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, so within their, their strongholds, or in, within their, their fortified cities, they are oppressing their own people. There's violence, there's robbery taking place. Does it sound familiar? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Now, like I said, under Jeroboam, there's two things the people are counting on. One is their wealth. One is their undefeated army, and the third one is God's covenant with Israel. 
They're counting on these things, much as we saw in the New Testament with the Pharisees and the worship there. And they're counting on that covenant as we, we are not people that God is going to punish or destroy because we're this covenant people. Now, think ahead with me. Off this chart on the green line, the southern kingdom. Uh, where did they get taken in their captivity? Now, they didn't get dispersed. They got captured. Where was it? No, that's some areas in the north. Babylon. They were taken to Babylon. Now, what did the city of Babylon look like? Well, this is my understanding. I'm sure there's probably other uh, measurements, but the city walls were um, the city walls were 80 foot wide. They actually could build homes up there. I would I would suppose the wealthy could build homes up there, and then uh, kind of like Ben Hur, they could run races around there. The city wall was 56 foot long, so it'd be like from here to Rosemont. That's the circle they make, 56 miles around. It was impenetrable. It couldn't be defeated. But what happened in 539 B.C. after 70 years of captivity, which God had proclaimed against southern Israel, Judah, the nation of Judah, what happened? Cyrus of Persia, he comes along, and what did he do? And they were celebrating in there, and broken festivity. He took the Euphrates River, which ran through the city of Babylon, he detoured the river and, and blocked it up, and his army marched in the riverbed under the city wall and took Babylon. Nothing's too difficult for God. God is sovereign. And just like we'll see with the southern tribe later on, how they get taken captive, we're going to see the northern tribe gets taken captive in spite of what they thought of themselves, because God is in control. So here, in, in uh, what we're going to see now in verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 4 is the continued declarations. And he says, and your strongholds, and that's the verse 11, your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues the mouth of the lion, out of the mouth of the lion, um, two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued, Samaria being Israel now, northern tribes, with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. What is he, what is he saying there? It was a common analogy. If, if you were a shepherd, uh, most shepherds didn't own their sheep. They were, they were watching the sheep for somebody else. Uh, you know, the wealthy again, which would be the case up here. And those shepherds, when they were watching the sheep, if, if, a, if a predator came, a lion and bear, I was supposed to be the most common, could be others, and they took one of the sheep, how was that shepherd going to account for that to the owner who might think he stole it? Pardon? He has to pursue the predator, and when the predator does done eating it, he goes in and finds some remnant to take back, show the owner, it wasn't me that stole the sheep, it was a predator that took it, and that would be fine. God is, is saying here through Amos that that's the way it's going to be in Samaria. 
in Israel. When the Assyrians come in, they're going to be so destructive, but there's going to be a remnant that I will keep. Now, I believe a lot of those people before Assyria came probably fled to Judah because they understood how wicked the worship was in the northern tribes. It could be that some of those that got captured and taken away might have escaped and found their way back to Judah. That's possible. But in some way, God is going to bring a remnant of the northern tribes back. Why? Because at the end of times, all 12 tribes are going to be represented. Now, God is sovereign and knows where these people went. He knows the intermarriage. He knows those who have any kind of blood. And I understand that. He can, he can, he can accomplish all of that without this. But I think here we're seeing his promise that there's going to be a remnant of those people just like the remnant from the sheep that's been destroyed, that when Assyria comes in and destroys the northern tribes, there's going to be a remnant that's saved. But it's going to be a very small remnant, like the little ear off a sheep. They're pretty small. But God is going to do that. A sovereign God can do this. So he goes on, and now he's got the second here. Hear and testify. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So in verses here, 13 and on, we're, we're seeing the places of security are going to be destroyed. Assyria is an instrument in God's hands. And the secu- what, what were they secure in these people? They were secure in their altars at Bethel and other places. And we'll speak of Bethel in just a minute. But they're secure in those altars. That was their place of worship. Even though in those places of worship, They had the original altar to God, but then they had their altars to Baal. They had the prostitution that came with Baal worship. They had the child sacrifice that came with Baal worship. These were all a part of of Israel at this time. And and, uh, he's saying here that they're going to be destroyed and tore down. Also in verse uh, 15, I think he's talking about there the wealthy and the uh, uh, palace, if you will, uh, of uh, the royal court, if you will, of the rulers of, of uh, northern Israel are going to be destroyed. God's attacking them at their leadership. That leadership not only came from rulers, which at this time would have been Jeroboam II, and the rulers to follow also, of course, but it also came from the wealthy citizens of the nation and how they operated with their finances. They were more in tune with building little empires with servants that they mistreated and abused than they were using those things that God had had given them for God's glory. That's that's the issue that's being being brought here. The social status to God meant nothing, but to them it meant everything, having that social status. And we have to be aware of that in our own lives, uh, how we want to be viewed. Now, sometimes we can't help how people view us. I understand that. But that's part of our sanctification. So as we go on into into chapter 4, 
we see some, some evidence of this very type of thing. And we, hear, we see again that this declaration of hear the word. Hear this word. And that's for us. Hear this word. Now, pastor references, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. What does that mean? When the Lord swears by himself, what does that mean? It's a promise, but what? Okay, double going to happen? Yes, it's irrefutable. It's irrefutable. When God pronounces that judgment, it's irrefutable. It'll never be taken back. And God is pronouncing that judgment here to the, to, to the northern tribes of Israel. Now, the, the, the whole thing about Bashan, you can see this in Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 22, and Ezekiel 19. But it's talking about an area, Transjordan. Transjordan means it's on the east side of Jordan. Jerusalem's on the west side of Jordan. And Transjordan, you remember, two and a half the tribes stayed there and didn't cross over into the, the Promised Land. So that became a part of Israel. But on the northern uh, uh, end of that, there's a, there's a valley. Uh, it's on the other side of the Yarmouk River. And there's a valley there that is just absolutely lush. It's perfect for agriculture. And he's talking here about the, the livestock in that part of Israel was always fat and ready because it was a blessed area of fertile fields and cattle. And he's, he's using this illustration for the women, which I believe it's got to be because the women had usurped authority or were allowed authority beyond which uh, they were to, to have. And they're oppressing the poor. They're crushing the needy. They're mistreating even their husbands. And he said, the Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when you shall be taken away with hooks, even the last of the fish hooks. What, what does that mean? And you should go out through the breaches, the breaches in the wall when the enemy attacks and there's holes in the wall. That's where they'll be taken out. And what he's talking about is a common practice, especially, I believe, by the, by the Assyrians. Excuse me. It's a common practice that when they capture the people, these women are going to be taken with a hook or a ring in their nose or their lips, and that's how they're going to be let out. Now, I come from an egg background, many here that have, and I can remember as a youngster, people, my dad's second cousin across the road from us, always had a bull out with the cows. And he always put a ring in his bull. Now, some people didn't do that, but there was a reason for that ring. One was you could put a long chain on the ring, so if the bull dipped his head to charge, he'd step on the chain. And if he cast the, the and I've seen bulls that would cast the chain aside to run, but then they couldn't see. But one day he got attacked by a, a big bull, and the bull had him right in the chest. And what he did was he grabbed that ring. And what do you think the bull did when he grabbed the ring? He backed up. Now, Sonny, as his name, got drug, but he was strong enough to hold on to that ring until help came. And that bull drug him, but it quit attacking him. You don't resist the pull of a ring 
on the nose. And that's what's going to happen to these, these ladies. They're going to be led out by a fish hook or a ring in their nose, and that's how they're going to be led out in front of the whole, whoever survived, whoever's left, in front of the armies of Assyria. And they're going to be led through the, the breaches in the walls in a way into being dispersed all over. They're not going to be captured and taken as a group. And that's the picture that, that Amos is giving him here from his message from God is that this pampered, self-indulgent uh, people are going to suffer a terrible travesty. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, I think there's some applications. The way we use and acquire and disperse our material things. I'm talking about us individually. What is our mindset? Is our mindset uh, to display wealth and prosperity you know, in, a, in a showcase, if you will? Or is our, is our mindset that we understand that everything we have, even our children, are God's, and we're to present them back to God in a proper act of worship? Now, in this dispensation, that's, that's the church. That's God's institution. We didn't start it. God started it. That's God's institution. So we have a responsibility to our church. And by the way, our church is our first mission field. Our pastor is our first missionary. We can't forget that. Because I can remember the days in this church where there wasn't much of any money to go out to the mission field. We took everything we had to support our local mission and our local missionary. We've been blessed with what we can do, but our, our church, our mission field, uh, they are the things that we have to be concerned with, and most of all, to understand that everything we have is God's. And just like these people, if we don't want to utilize, if, if we're not generous when God's been generous to us, if we're not generous back, there's a lot of ways God can take it. I've seen it, and it will happen, even to us. It's not going to be the Assyrians coming in. Uh, here in the United States, we just tend to erode from within. But we have to be cautious of that, just like he was warning here. Then we're going to finish up. There's three interchanges or interrelated sections in, in verses 4 through 13. 4 through 5 is sarcasm. He's going to use sarcasm concerning their sinful worship. 6 through 11 is history lesson of God's curses on his covenant people and their lack of true worship. And then 12 through 13, 12 and 13 is the warning of our need to be self-prepared before God. So let's take a look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Now, why were Bethel and Gilgal important in Israel? Anybody remember? Pardon? The altars were there. Why? The one at Bethel was, remember Jacob's dream? And he got up from his dream and he built an altar. And that became, that became uh, 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 if you will, uh, uh, a fundamental uh, expression of God dealing with Israel. And it was, it was a foundational thing. Cross right here. Um, of us have been around here a long time, that's kind of important. Our first pastor made that cross. To me, that's, that's symbolic and embolic of God and how he started a church here in Pine Island. 
very poor beginnings. But God has seen it through. Our uh, pulpit in the the table up front, those three pieces came out of the original church. And I I think it should mean something to all of us because they're the foundational pieces uh, that are kept from our church. Well, that's the same thing that we're dealing with here is uh, these altars at Bethel, Gilgal, was where uh, all the Israelites had to be circumcised before they crossed the river and, and uh, attacked uh, Jericho. And we know Jericho, the walls didn't fall out, the walls fell in. God took the city down. But that was, that was uh, the, the, uh, the uh, circumcision was an identity for Israel, a physical identity. And that's what he's talking about here in chapter 4. Bethel and Gilgal are, are holy places that are sacred to Israel, true Israel, and you have destroyed them with false worship. Every morning, bring your tithes. When were they supposed to bring their tithes? Well, family tithes were, bought, were brought once a year. They are bringing them every day. Um, the family offerings. The tithe uh, of produce was brought once every three years. And they were bringing it every three days. Well, what were they doing? They were making a show of who they are, just like the Pharisees. They were making a show of who they are, and the wealthy people were bringing these constant sacrifices to outdo one another and show off in front of Israel. And God's rejecting it. Useless worship was taking place. Uh, if you want reference on those sacrifices, once a year is 1 Samuel 1, and then Deuteronomy chapter 14 and chapter 26 uh, have to do with the, the tithe every, th- every third year on the produce. But the whole thing is here, their worship had little to do with honoring God. It had everything to do with honoring themselves. And then we go on to, uh, to verses 6 to 11. A declaration now is added to this. You did not return to me. The theme here is God himself brought all the natural disasters to them. Remember chapter 4, verse 2? He swore by his holiness. He swore by his own holiness. Well, now he's going he's he's to remind them of all the disasters they've suffered and didn't learn their lesson. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He, he brought a famine. Their teeth were clean because they didn't have anything to eat. And he brought a famine. Uh, I think all these are related because the next is, I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to harvest, now that would, be, my understanding, that would be February through April. Uh, the planting takes place. Now the, the, the early rains take place. But the barley crop never came to fruition, which is usually uh, late May, June. The harvest is, he said, I sent these on one city I, and send no rain in another city. One field and have no rain in another field. Why? To show that it was by God's hand that he's doing this. And so sometimes they'd wander, in verse 8, they'd wander to other cities to see if they could find water because uh, their water pools were all dried up because of uh, uh, the drought that was taking place. And he says, yet, verse 8, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, common uh, things that can come with drought. Your many gardens, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Now what should that remind them of? The locusts. Egypt. 
And he's going to even mention the next verse. That should remind them of Egypt. 700 years earlier, I brought you out of Egypt. I destroyed that country. And you don't remember that? So, so we see here uh, in verse 10 then, I sent you among a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword, carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. And what he's talking about here is the plagues, which were similar to Egypt 700 years earlier. They should know that history. And he said that they, the, they defeated their army, the stench of the death, of the, uh, that was at the hands of Syria. King, uh, I believe, Haziel of Syria. That would have been somewhere in the early 800 B.C.s. And you can look that up in 2 Kings uh, 13. And uh, uh, these, these people were killed and left in the streets to the point where the stench of the horses and the dead men rose up in their nostrils. And what did they do? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Just think of this. Just think of this. You think of the, the disasters that happened in the country. You think of the attack on, on, uh, on the Ukraine and so on. Is God saying there, because of the missionaries that have been there, there's a Bible school there that, I uh, uh, can't say their name now, that started started over there, uh, in a seminary, I believe. And all these things, uh, did, did they not listen? Is this how God is judging to bring them to repentance? Very well could be. It also could be for us to witness and be careful that we don't suffer the same fate. So we see here that uh, many of these were killed, in the, including the days of Hosea and uh, in Israel's, uh, 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 pardon me, past for Amos, and in Israel's history. The final curse, and then we're going to be done. It's a sudden and complete destruction. And we're going to be in verse 11. I overthrew some of you. That's past tense now. So we know these things happened in the past. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet did not return to me, declares the Lord. And he's talking about... I don't know. Some think this could be an earthquake that took place. And because of the fires and stuff that were produced, uh, many of the people had been destroyed. And he's using, uh, he's using this as, uh, as, a, as an example of, of uh, a fire taking place, and you pull a stick out of there to save that stick. And that's how few the people of Israel were that were saved out of this calamity. And he says... He says it in past tense, I overthrew you, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. Even with the few who were, who were rescued and saved. So he goes to verse 12 and he says, therefore, now we're talking future tense, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Israel must prepare to meet their God. Why? Because he is going to destroy the ten northern tribes. That's the promise given by Amos. Very, very, uh, you know, gloomy promise, isn't it? And yet it's for us. Prepare to meet your God. That's what we need to be doing. Sanctification. I got four things and we're done. God wants our hearts more than our gifts. But Exodus 36 and 37, you remember when Moses ask the people to all sacrifice, not just the wealthy ones, everybody, 
sacrifice and bring gifts to build the temple, what happened? Anybody remember? They brought gifts in such abundance Moses finally had to because when God has our hearts, he will also have our gifts. And the gifts will abound. If God has our hearts as a people here, the gifts will abound. Not just from a few, but from everybody. Why? Because we're all commanded. If you go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we went through that in Sunday school, we're all commanded to give and to give uh, uh, in abundance to God. The Corinthians reminded that versus the Macedonians. Macedonia gave out of their, out of their poverty. Corinth was to give out of their wealth. I think, I think we can say that's true of us. If you look on a world scale, pastors bring this up all the time. As a, on, a, on a world scale, we are all wealthy here as Christians. Our, our gifts should abound. And I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying that's what God would, would uh, have us do. And and he's, he's, he's done that in the past. He's had that example to Israel, and they didn't, they didn't repent. Secondly, God wants our attention on him, not on ourselves. You know, he doesn't want the attention on us. He wants the attention on him when we come to worship. We're doing that this morning. God chastens for a reason, the third one. Don't, don't be an unwilling, stubborn people like uh, he was uh, proclaiming there of... Uh, uh, in that particular case, specifically the women of Bashan, but as Israel in general, all the things that God had brought down on them for judgment, and they still wouldn't return to him. They still wouldn't truly repent. So he chastens for a reason. Fourthly, God wants us prepared to see him face to face. Sanctification, set apart from sin to holiness. That should be our goal, every one of us is our personal sanctification and being set apart for a purpose. And that purpose would be to serve him here, but ultimately it would be to meet him. We'd say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That should be the desire of every one of us. But desire isn't enough. Activity. It takes activity. We should be a cohesive family. And we should do it if for no other reason the fact that we realize only God ever brought this group of people together. There's no other way. Socially, economically, whatever, that we would ever meet together except that God has brought us. Well, God has brought us here. Then we, wanna, we don't want to do as Israel and just forsake him with ill worship and, uh, and even inner fighting like we saw with them and oppression. No, we want to see it because... We are cohesive. We are a family of God, the church, the lo- local called out people. The Old Testament isn't for the Old Testament believers. The Old Testament was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Remember that was in Galatians? It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We need to understand the Old Testament before we can ever understand the New Testament. Okay, thank you so much for your attention. And Wayne will finish up uh, Nahum uh, next week. He's enjoying himself out at Westeros.